This is Fundraising Review, and today's a guest speaker we have Bessam Miken, co-founder and CTO of Trade Dash that was recently acquired by Bitrex, second largest crypto exchange in the United States. In this episode, we'll talk about Bessam's unique approach to creating companies. He's focusing on creating companies and uh, selling them really fast. So, for example, Trade Dash was acquired in less than nine months after it was started. So in this episode, we'll focus on accelerating this process of acquisition, how you can influence that, how you can prepare yourself for acquisition, and how to make sure you don't have any deals that actually will prevent you from getting acquired. So Vesam, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Trade Dash. Well, uh, first of all, let me say thank you for having me. Um, so I have been a software engineer and basically have been working with startups for about 15 years now, basically, give or take. And Tradash was one of the latest projects that was acquired that I was a co-founder for. Um, the project, as you mentioned, was acquired by Bitrix LLC uh, two years ago at this point. And we basically started, uh, with my co-founder and I, uh, after researching the crypto space for quite some time, some time and decided that Basically, there was a need for uh, some type of mechanism, some trading platform that extends the exchanges with extra functionality that currently exists, you know, all over the place in the stock trading world, basically, but did not exist for cryptocurrencies. So what we wanted to do is basically take, you know, a lot of the existing exchanges, plug a bunch of features and functionality on top of the exchanges and focus on delivering a good financial service to the end customer rather than, you know, having to worry about being the exchange and sort of deal with those issues. We want to focus more on the service layer, basically. So that's uh, how Trade Dash came about. And uh, we just developed it, de- developed it from there. And it was acquired in about nine months time from the initial inception of the project. So we'll talk about that super extra fast acquisition in just a few minutes. But first, I was curious, why should founders try to choose this you know, fast access? What's the, what are the pros and cons of that strategy? Well, there are multiple approaches. I mean, there is no right right way or wrong. I mean, it really depends on you as a founder, right? What, what are the things that you value? Uh, what are the things you want to work on? Uh, do you uh, want to work on the same idea for five years and perfect it? Or are you more of the exploring type that likes to, you know, initialize a project, make sure it's stable and it's growing, and then perhaps exit that and then move on to the next project that you find exciting? So it's more of a personal choice somewhat, uh, but also we got a pretty decent offer. Uh, we had business model planned um, to take hold of the entire network, basically, that we had. Um you know, there was a lot of interest from the exchanges. They used to reach out to us all the time and tell us about how much, you know, they like our uh, project. And uh, we got multiple, basically, offers, and we evaluated them on their merit and said, you know what, uh, we were aiming for a fast exit. Our initial plan was a two-year uh, long uh, process after which we, we would exit. But that just, we happened to accelerate it so much that it actually happened in nine months instead of two years. But, you know, basically, we're... My co-founder and I were the type of people that like to basically initiate projects, work on them for a uh, some period of time, not a super long period of time, and exit those. Uh, so that's uh, it's, it's somewhat of a personal thing mixed with a bunch of you know business model re- related things that led to us exiting in in that short of a period. Got it, and that's that's super interesting. So 
how how exactly were you able to exit so fast? So did you already have a strategy planned out that was you know, reaching to an exit? Were you like slowly approaching this acquirer, this uh, uh, B-Trex, or did it just happen? No, actually, we had a strategy from the get-go. I mean, really, when you start companies, you have you have two ways to go about things. Either you start a business for yourself and grow it and, you know, make it into cash-generating business for a long period of time, and you own it and together with your investors, whoever else you have in your cap table, and you basically run it as a regular business. Or you can, from the get-go, as we did, decide to build something that would be attractive attractive for others to acquire. So if you're thinking about that in, context, in the context of, let's say you want to build something related to social media, as an example, then you probably should, from the get-go, at least game it out. I'm not saying you should aim for it, but at least gaming out that there is a possibility for you to be acquired by one of the large social media platforms. Okay, well, if that is the case, how do you go about building your feature sets? Uh, how do you go about acquiring customers that they already don't have? Uh, so there are all these questions that you have to ask yourself if you're gearing for a quick exit. And um, you should have a game plan for that, at least, in my opinion, even if you're planning on doing a five to 10 year long run with a company. So these are some of the things we did. We sat down, we asked ourselves, okay, what are some things that exchanges would be interested in acquiring? What are some feature feature sets that currently don't exist that they might be able to utilize internally? Uh, what sort of services can we provide that they themselves as exchanges cannot currently provide to their customers? Uh, that would be value add for them to basically acquire us and implement into their existing platforms. So that was sort of our approach. And if I were to do it all over again, I'd do it the exact same way. Basically ask myself these questions and, and orient the product and the entire company in that direction. That's such a very, very interesting approach. I'm not even sure if I've heard that one before. So um, I'm trying to think of <laughs> anything related to that approach. But did you aim for specific acquire or did you just, you know, did you aim for all the uh, crypto exchanges? Well, okay. Let me just tackle the first part of that, which is, you know, that it's a, a non, what should we say, a non-typical approach. Yeah. The thing about it is that you have to ask yourself as a founder, what is the what is the end goal of business? It's obviously to generate money. I mean, you can generate money over a 10-year period or you can generate an extreme amount of money over a short period of time, but you have to gear your company correctly in order to be able to, hop, to, to, to put yourself in that position. You cannot, it's not the same strategy, basically, if you want to have a long-term sort of 10-year tedious process versus a two-year accelerated process. These are two completely different processes. And you have to you know, decide from the get-go which one of the two you want to chase and uh, basically orient your company based on, on what the end goal is. For us, the end goal was exiting because we did not want to make a cash-generating business over a long period of time. We wanted to take that capital from that acquisition and invest it into other projects that we also had in mind prior. Mm -hmm. um, so it was just a branching move for us. That was the first part of your question. The second part, can you remind me what that was? Um, I wish I remembered that one. No, I'm just kidding. I actually remember that. It's, uh, you aim for a specific acquirer, so do you aim yeah. uh, to be acquired by Btrex specifically, or is it you no. know, just we want to be acquired by some crypto exchange? We figured out that there are two exit possibilities. One is getting acquired by a crypto exchange. The other is a financial firm that deals with crypto trading in general, because the product that we have was a trading platform. Obviously, you know, a social media, you know, like Facebook wouldn't acquire us. I mean, what what, what mm -hmm. will Facebook do with a trading platform, right? It's not within their core sort of mission statements. 
Um, so for us, it was more geared toward a, uh, a specific subset of potential acquirers, which is, you know, be it, um, you know, name all the exchanges, Bitrix, Binance, Bitmix, whichever. All of these were potential acquirers at the end of the day for us, the way we structured our business. And we just happened to go with Bitrix because we felt that that was the best fit, basically, mm-hmm. uh, both in terms of culture, but also in terms of product, among many other things. Got it. So I assume that before, I mean, you are a crypto-related company, and did you raise any money through an ICO? We actually considered first raising um, regular, you know, via venture capital or via angel invest, uh, investors. We discussed the possibility with a couple, uh, but we, at the end of the day, they all asked for A, too much equity, and B, we realized that actually our running cost is very, very, very low. I mean, the way I usually build my businesses, just to give you an idea, we handle billions of transact- transactions or rather billions of dollars worth of transactions in terms of crypto trading uh, in that nine months period. And the whole platform was running on a couple hundred dollars worth of, of rented hardware, basically. So the running cost for, for the organization was very, very small. The only, you know, the, the big the big ticket items were you know salaries and stuff like that, uh, but even those were not that expensive because the way we we worked internally was you know we put in a lot of sweat equity me and my co-founder and we also hired for the specific parts uh, sort of on contract or uh, certain certain things you have to basically such as security consult uh, consultation you want to have proper security audits and stuff like that those are external third party services so those were some running costs but. In general, we stayed very lean. We stayed very cost efficient, uh, which allowed us, in a sense, to basically not need any VC money or any money in general. Now, we considered doing an ICO. But at the end of the day, uh, we came to the conclusion that unless the coin you're issuing has some level of functionality inherent within it, it's going to be more like a gimmick than an actual product type thing. Um, this was back in 2017 during the ICO craze. And uh, even though we could have raised millions and millions of dollars doing an ICO, we decided not to do it because an ICO in general would have put us in some murky waters when it comes to banking, transacting, conversion to dollars. Uh, a lot of banks didn't even want to touch us. Um, I mean, we asked about all these things beforehand and we decided that you know what raising the money is not worth it for us via an ICO because it would put us on a path that we perhaps shouldn't take and we ended up settling on not doing it even though we had the ability to do so easily within a you know another month time or so it just mm-hmm. it just wasn't needed considering that we we exited so fast right 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 so here i want to get a little bit distracted from this major topic of you know accelerating this acquisition process yeah. And ask you about something that you mentioned earlier, which is you deciding to, you know, rather than building a cash generating business, you decide to get this capital and invest into some ideas that you had prior to Trade Dash. How do you do any angel investments in other projects? Uh, from time to time, yes. Uh, although I was, I was considering starting a basically not a, an angel investment fund of sort, together with a couple. Uh, friends and acquaintances, ex-colleagues of mine, we wanted to pull together our money and start investing it uh, appropriately as we basically, 
because let me let me put it this way instead. We look at companies very differently from the traditional VC type of mindset because VCs gain a lot of their value for their investments based on markups. So basically, you know, you get uh, some money, some seed money or some series A money from a VC firm. And when you get a series B, that VC firm uh, basically gets a markup on its initial investment. Mm-hmm. Now, for the VC firm, that works uh, because they're basically marking up their deals. Uh, they can raise secondary funds and invest further. For us... Um, me and my ex-colleagues and friends and, and the people that I work with usually, uh, we look at companies very differently. We look at companies um, as a function of one or two things. Either you want to have a company that exits really quickly, such as Trade Dash, to an exchange in order to basically make it a one-time deal, but it's a really you know well-paying deal. Alternatively, you want to have a business that is uh, cash positive from day one or you know at the initial stages. You don't want to invest in businesses that will, you know, bear fruit 15 years from now because, you know, variance is very high. You don't know what's going to happen. Problems could arise at any moment. And, you know, these are not the type of businesses I'm attracted to. So when I do angel investment, I mostly uh, look at companies that already have revenue, actually have profits even. And even if they're small profit, but I can see some room for those profits to scale up by basically some injection of capital. Uh, at that point, it would be interesting for me to invest. And there are very few of these ideas at the moment out there that I find to be extremely lucrative. That's why, even though I've done a little bit of angel investing, it's not something I, I do full time or it's not something I actively chase at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that you, you said that you actually look for those uh, ideas and, you know, the products yeah. that are fit for you. Where do you find most of them? Is it Crunchbase? Is it some other software that you're using? Weirdly enough, I, I've used Crunchbase for quite some time. It wasn't really that fruitful. I mean, out of 100 companies you look into, maybe one or two will be interesting enough. And when you contact the founders and talk to them, you know, perhaps the company is not uh, profitable or perhaps the company is not taking as much risk as I would like because I'm an extremely risk-tolerant person. I like ideas that, you know, go big or go home type ideas. A lot of these companies don't usually have that. Maybe they have a 10-year plan, and, and they're structured in a very different way than how I think about startups generally. For that reason, when I research startup, it's mostly so that I, as an example, you take something like Hacker News. Um, I'm not sure if you frequent Hacker News, um, the Y Combinator, news.ycombinator.com. Um, Usually they have some threads up there, you know, what is your side project that you're working on currently, as an example. And you scroll through it and there may be hundreds of submissions, people talking about their projects. And then there I might find a project or two that are interesting. So I reach out to the founder and, you know, talk to them about, hey, um, so what's the status of the project? What are you looking for? And we have just a basic dialogue to figure out if the, if the investment opportunity is worth it mm-hmm. or not. And if so is the case, you know, you proceed. Otherwise, you basically wait for the next opportunity to show up. It's an extremely tedious process. Unfortunately, there is no quick way. Um, A lot of people reach out to me from time to time, uh, pitching me their startups. Uh, Like I said, most of them don't fall within my parameters and, you know, the way I I look at risk and profits. So I tend to say no to most deals that come my way. But every once in a while, something good shows up. And, you know, that's, that's what I usually... Uh, proceed with. Right. So I want to follow up on what you just said, which is you know, scrolling through Hacker, hacker News, going through Crunchbase, etc., and reaching out yourself to founders. I mean, it's uh, one of the most frequently asked questions for me as uh, by founders is like, how do I get myself out there in front of investors? 
specifically now during this coronavirus, what would be your recommendation mm. to those founders? Should they uh, go in Hacker News or should they try to get published in uh, uh, TechCrunch or what, what's, what's the advice? Actually, it, it depends on the type of product you have. So it's, if it's a tech product or actually a physical product, like a hardware related product, uh, or a, it's very different depending on the on the nature of the product. That said, however, I found I found one thing to be true throughout my career, which is if you create good products, even if they're just in the prototype stage and you know, they have a couple hundred users, if you have a decent product that people like, they will help you get whatever it is you need. So, for instance, for Trade Dash, you know. Some days I used to sit down and just, you know, my head down into my keyboard and, and coding. And suddenly I get a message out of nowhere saying, hey, I'm one of your users. Uh, your app is really interesting. Are you guys looking to raise money? Uh, mm-hmm. I work for a venture capital firm. Uh, I would like to, you know, chip in if, if you have an opening in your cap table, et cetera, et cetera. So if you make products that people like in general, the money will flow to you. Now, obviously, that's not always true. There are always exceptions and it, it's not that easy. However, it's generally the case that if your product is providing value, venture capitalists will find you. I mean, that's, after all, their job. They're scouring you know, every right. possible company you can think of looking for value. So if you can present an application or a product that provides value, they will find you eventually. Now, you also have to do a couple of things. You know, set up your LinkedIn page, uh, get on social media, you know, do some Reddit posts or stuff like that just to get some exposure. But once you start building your user base, these things will come and fall into place. Just make sure you're lean enough and cost-effective enough to be able to withstand all that you know, time and, and money pressure until said opportunity presents itself. That's, that's perfect advice. It's, it's great. And here we're moving on to discussing the MVP. So the MVP building is not the most, not the hardest part, of course, of the of the travel it's probably one of the easiest parts but still mm-hmm. many specifically early stage founders struggle with the mvp often they build too many features sometimes they build too few features and don't provide this you know value in this main and viable product and what's your recommendation that how do you find this soft i mean nice spot is there like a formula for that this is a great question i mean there is no formula unfortunately it's a form of art more than it is a form of science right uh, it's it's there, there is no way to to know a priori what will work and what won't. But let's take an example. Let's say you want to build a I don't know. Let's say a an email client such as Gmail as an example. Let's say you want to build that and make that into a business. Now you have to ask yourself what are generally when when people ask themselves the question. Well, what are the the minimum amount of features I need to have in my applications for, application for my MVP? Then, you know, make a list and go ahead and develop all these products. But you have to keep in mind that the minimum required uh, features is that you'll be able to compose an email, send it, receive it. You know, a couple handful of features like that. However, in order for you to be so, so that's on the on the low end. On the top end, let's say, you can have a full-fledged system with like scheduling and categorization and all these other things. So that's on the extreme end. Your job as a founder is to basically find a balance between the minimum and the value. And the way I see this, for instance, the and the email application you're building is going to be completely useless, as an example, if it doesn't have uh, a spam filter. Because people are going to get spammed, they will never use your application, they won't like it, and it won't grow. 
So it's your job to find the balance between the value part and the minimum part. And generally what I see founders do is that they focus on either providing the minimum part and at that stage, basically, someone signs signs up for your application and basically there is nothing in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get no value out of it. Alternatively, they focus on the value part and keep adding more and more and more features mindlessly, just basically these feature creeping. So it's your job actually to balance these two things out. And the hardest thing, and I know this from experience, is to be to say no. Like it's really hard to say no. Oh, here is this cool new features we thought of. I mean, my first sentence is always, let's go ahead and do it. But I always fight that urge and go, no, let's not do it unless it's necessary in the initial stages. Once you have your financing secured, once you have, you know, your 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 uh, company and organization is flowing, at that point, you can take on these additional things that provide more value. But when you're in the MVP stage, you want to keep that, that under check, under control, and not basically become a feature creep or, on the other hand, become, you know, a type of application that provide no value. Got it. Yeah, that's that's a perfect perfect example on that uh, Jamil client. So let's talk about the other part that really interests me in this, you know, accelerated acquisition process and work. Yeah, we're getting back to the main discussion of today's mm-hmm. episode, which is accelerating your acquisition process. So hiring. Hiring is hard. It requires some legal advice from professionals. It takes months sometimes. How do you manage to hire new people uh, if you once you get acquired in you know, less than a year. Oh, boy. I mean, this is a topic I could talk about for days, not hours, <laughs> actual days. So it's really hard to distill it down. But what we know from research is that, you know, in, in, in most organizations, there is a Pareto distribution or, or something close to a Pareto distribution in where the most the most amount of productivity gain in your organization comes from a few uh select people and most other people provide some value but not an extraordinary amount of value so for me when i hire i always ask myself is this person going to be an extreme value contributor or a non-extreme value contributor is it someone i need crucially or is it someone that i need because there's some stuff that needs to be done for the next three months but then that person will sit down and do basically nothing Uh, and if the if the case is that it's a short-term thing I need. I mostly hire, you know, as a, as a consultant or a contractor or something like that for these type of gigs. Meanwhile, if you need something more robust and permanent and long-term, you obviously have to do the, the actual hiring long-term. That said, I mostly don't hire based on coding. Uh, like, if, if you look at the large tech firms, what they do is they bring you in, give you some coding exercise if you're working in tech, and, you know, they ask you some questions and, they get you back again and again and again and keep filtering. I do things differently. Uh, first, The first thing I do is basically a gut check, an instinct check, which is, okay, can I sit down and talk ideas with this person openly? And can this person provide me with valuable creative ideas that I can implement into the organization and into the product? If the answer to that is yes, then this person will always provide you with more value than just code. Meanwhile, if the answer to that is no, that means the uh, most this person can provide you with is code. And for me, personally, being a software engineer 15 years, I know that I can train a monkey to code. Obviously, he won't be a world-class coder, but it's like coders are, you know, everywhere. 
Um, so getting coders is not the tough part. The tough part is getting someone who's going to add ex- ex- uh, extra value to your organization that will en- enable you to grow even faster. More than just product-oriented type coding things, could be things like uh, in terms of organizational skills. Can this person be creative enough to find solutions to problems that I can't even think of because I don't have the experience in a particular domain? Does this person have maybe a PhD in some area or a master's degree in some area that I'm unfamiliar with, such as, let's say, visual design or what have you? These are some stuff that I look at initially just to get a gut check. And afterwards, I ask myself the one question I think every founder have to ask themselves, which is, uh, well, the one metric I follow is, what is the revenue or profit per employee? I think that's one metric everyone has to look at. It's not something religious you follow, but it's something to keep in mind. Because basically for every employee you add, uh, the revenue per employee is obviously reduced. If you have a million dollars in 10 employees, you know, you divide a million by 10. If you have 11, million by 11. So for me, I try to keep that number as high as possible, not for some you know superstitious reason, but because I found that when organization turned into 40, 50 people, you know, in the, in the range of 40 to 50 employees, that's when things start to break down. Now you need suddenly middle management and you need to hire HR and all these yeah. other areas start to creep in. So you want to always keep your organization lean, less than 40 people so that everybody's aligned on board with the mission. And if there is no crucial or non-essential staff, don't hire them on full time. Just <laughs> basically use consultant or something of that nature for those particular tasks. Again, this is a topic I could talk about for days, but I'm trying to right. distill it down. I'm not sure if I'm doing a good job of it, but these are just some you are. I think that was a really good answer. It was big enough, but also short enough for this episode. So uh, it was great. Thank you for, for that. Awesome. Awesome. And exactly. We're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is this thing that I started doing recently with all my speakers, which is small call to action to the listeners of Fundraising Radio. So once this episode is over, what is one thing that you want the listener to do right now? One specific thing. Um. One specific thing. Uh, can I give you a couple? Or does sure, it have to be? Sure, one? sure, sure. A couple works perfectly. Okay. Well, two things I think are very important for founders to understand, which is, I mean, mo- most most founders know these things, but basically studying them at length is very, very beneficial, which is compounding growth and Pareto distributions. Mainly just so that the compounding growth is basically for the sake of the financial plan and how you build your business and basically business model, you need to introduce some element of compounding growth into your organization in order for it to be able to provide value in a, in a very short period of time. Otherwise, it's going to take you too long. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part, Pareto distribution, is, is, is related to hiring, is related to productivity and other things. So Pareto distribution and compounding growth are two things people should probably read up on. And uh, the biggest thing, the CTA I would give to everyone would be Stop looking at shiny things. I mean, don't don't try to create gimmick. Don't try to force value or value is not found. Instead, basically focus, like hyper-focus on the actual thing, on the actual valuable thing you're trying to, uh, to get to work and make sure that, that is solid and build around it, expand from there. So don't, mm-hmm. don't get sidetracked by, you know, we have to implement, I don't know, React because it's the cool, hip, new thing everyone is using. Ignore all this nonsense and noise and instead focus on, I mean, your users don't care what you use. It could be pure JavaScript or Ajax if you want, or, or it could be jQuery or 
use whatever technology you can. Your users don't care. What they care about is that you deliver to them value in a right. secure fashion, and uh, they want transparency and trust. And once you deliver these parts, I don't think anyone cares about your tech stacks. So don't get attracted to shiny things just for the sake of it. That that would be my my take home, I guess. Perfect. That's a perfect wrap up of this episode. And on this part, we will wrap it up. Thank you, Wesam, uh, again for coming up and for taking your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. I think the episode went great. I think there is some some new vision on this process of you know getting acquired because. Most of my previous speakers who spoke about that usually said that, you know, it generally takes five, five to 10 years because that's, that's the average number. And having someone who is doing a really fast version of that process is really, really interesting. And I'm pretty sure the listeners will love it as well. So thank you for that perspective. Thanks for the kind words and thanks for having me.